1: a biography of Muhammad Ali. Ike was born in Brooklyn, New York, and grew up in Monsee, New York. He attended Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, graduating in 1986. His first newspaper job was with the New Orleans Times and Ike is a former staff member of the Wall Street Journal and he remains a contributing writer there. He has written for the New York Times, Esquire, The New Republic, Men's Health, and other publications. Prior to working at the Wall Street Journal, he worked as a feature writer for Chicago Magazine. He has taught writing at Columbia College in Chicago and lectures at Northwestern. He has spoken to audiences on various topics in the United States, including as a keynote speaker at the 2005 Cooperstown Symposium on Baseball and American Culture at the National Baseball Hall of Fame and the Chappelle Great Lives Lecture Series at Mary Washington University. He has traveled the country speaking to organizations raising money for the fight against Lou Gehrig's disease and was honored on the field at Yankee Stadium for his work in raising awareness of this disease. He has appeared on The Daily Show with John Stewart. And in 2012, Ai and Solomon Lieberman launched Chicago Sci Sports and Online Sports Magazine. Please join me in welcoming Jonathan I to Baltimore and the Pratt Library.
2: everybody for coming tonight. I know there's a football game that might be uh, disrupting traffic and keeping a few people away, but uh, we're here and we're going to have a nice time. And um, I want to tell you a little bit about my journey into the life of Muhammad Ali. You know, whenever Muhammad Ali got a nice introduction like that, he would always begin by saying, well, thank you for that warm introduction. You're not as dumb as you look. Um, And you, you can get away with that when you're six foot three and beautiful and the heavyweight champion of the world. Um, you may have noticed that Ali and I do not share a lot of attributes, at least um, um, on the surface. Um, we both do have a really good jab, though, a really quick jab, you know, um, super fast, do you want to see my jab? Do you want to see it again? <laughs> That's another Ali joke. Um, he was a great entertainer, as you know, as well as a great boxer, as well as a great um, force for change and a great revolutionary, one of the country's great rebels, I think. So I want to tell you a little bit today about how I got interested in Ali, how I um, set out to tell his story, and what I learned along the way. Um, The story for me began, the idea for this book began when I was talking to a friend who was thinking about doing a book on Babe Ruth, and we were talking about it, and I said, you know, I, I can't wait to read this book on Babe Ruth, because other than Muhammad Ali, there's nobody more interesting, nobody more important in the history of American sports. And then it occurred to me that I, couldn't think of a biography of, of Muhammad Ali, that there hadn't really been one yet. There had been many books, maybe hundreds of books written about Ali, but they'd all taken little pieces of his life. And um, I began to think about why nobody had done the whole life story yet. And I think it's in part because you need some time to go by before you can really appreciate the historical importance of a person. Um, you know, But now enough time has gone by. It was 50 years since Ali had... Um, become heavyweight champ, 50 years since he announced that he was joining the Nation of Islam and changing his name from Cassius Clay, and 50 years more or less since he took his stand against the Vietnam War and said he wouldn't serve. So it was enough time that I could begin to reckon with those things and see what they meant. And also, um, it was a good time because Ali, when I began, was still alive. Many of his friends and family members were still alive. Three out of his four wives were still alive. So I began this determined to write what I hoped would be the definitive, the biggest and most um, reliable account of Ali's life. And when you're a biographer, there are certain things that you set out to do. Um, One, obviously, is to tell the truth. And that's important to point out because when you write about some of these mythological figures, figures who seem larger than life, like Ali or Al Capone uh, or Jackie Robinson, subjects of my other books, um, there's a tendency to accept these myths that become adhered to them, to believe the legend, and to forget that these were real people. And one of the things I want to do with my books is to sort of scrape those layers of mythology away and find out who these people really were. So tell the truth. um, Dig deep and try to find things that haven't been told before. But also, I think maybe perhaps most importantly, is to have empathy with your with your person you're writing about to help the reader understand who this person was, what made them special, and then how they changed the world. Understand how they got to be who they were and understand how they helped make the world a different place. And one of the first people I interviewed for this book was Dick Gregory, Um, and Dick Gregory said to me, you're going to fail if you can't help me understand, if you can't make your reader understand why this kid thought he could be special. What made a black kid think that in Jim, growing up in the Jim Crow South, think that he could call himself the greatest? What made a person think that they could get away with stuff that you could get arrested, killed, lynched for at the time? And if you can't help me understand why Ali thought he could escape that, then don't bother writing your book, basically. So I thought that was really an important warning. And, And the fact, and he's, you know, as Dick Gregory said to me, the fact that you're white makes the job harder. And the fact that you're you know, born after all these events took place makes the job harder. So you get your work cut out for you. So I began this journey. Um, one of the first things you do when you when you write about a, a living subject like this is you, you go out and do, you know, you start reading as much as you can, obviously. But you also begin interviewing people who knew your subjects. And you begin. We have someone here tonight, Rosellen, who knew Ali back in the '60s in Miami. Um, you go out and you interview people who knew him, um, and you try to get not to be Crass about it. You interview a lot of the old folks first because they may not be around when you know if you wait too much longer. So, one of the first people I interviewed was Ali's wife. Uh, this is Khalila, his second wife. Um, his first wife was, was deceased, passed away um, in the 90s. Um, so, I met Khalila. She was at a film signing. This is a picture. She was at a film premiere in, in Chicago. And I went up to her and I said, Hi, I'm Jonathan Igan. I'm writing the biography of, of your husband. And she looked at me like, who are you? And who gave you permission to do that? Mm. And it's a really important thing to think about. You know, Nobody gives me permission to do these books. Um, I just decide that I want to do it, and then I have to earn the right to do it. And I have to earn these people's trust. So I said, I want to write a book that's, that will be good enough that your grandchildren and great-grandchildren will read it to understand who Ali really was and I hope that you'll trust me. I hope that you'll do an interview with me." And she said, I'll do an interview with you for $6,000. <laughs> I said, okay, good to know. How'd you come up with that number? Um, and, and she explained that some other writer had given her $6,000 for her. And you said that was her price. And I said, no, i not gonna pay. Um, but she has family in Chicago. She comes around a lot. And whenever she came to Chicago, I would, she comes, to, she was selling dental insurance. She'd go to nursing homes. And she would uh, try to sell dental insurance to the nursing homes. And I would show up at the nursing homes, and I'd take her out to lunch afterwards. And after a while, you know, she kind of, I, I kind of grew on her, I guess, or else I, she just got tired of me bugging her. And uh, she began telling me stories. And um, she kept saying, "Well, I'm not really going to give you the full interview unless you pay." And, um, but gradually, she was she was telling me more and more. And then I found an old guy Chicago, a photographer for the Nation of Islam who had thousands of old photos of Ali, including family photos of Khalilah and her babies. And I started buying the photos from this photographer and sending them to Khalilah. And uh, she wanted more. So I said, well, when I come down to do the next interview, I'll bring you more. So we began to, to get along. And um, and she began to trust me, to tell me stories about what their marriage was like, and about what his romantic life was like, and what kind of father he was. And I was beginning to, to understand this man better. I, I went and interviewed Ali's brother, Rachman, you've probably met Rachman a few times. He was known as Rudy. Um, Cassius Clay and Rudy Clay uh, were the only two children of Odessa and Cassius Sr. And Rachman, when I called him and asked him for an interview, he only wanted $1,000. <laughs> I said, Rachman, all I want to know is, is, is your dog's name. He said, $1,000. I said, that's a funny name for a dog. Um, he said, no, 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 you are got to pay me $1,000 if I want know my dog's name. <coughs> I said, I'm not paying. Um, but I kept calling and calling, and then um, I found that Rahman is, 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 has, has had some hard times. He's, he's on food stamps, he's living in public housing. and I found uh, an old friend of Ali's who sends him money every month to help him out. Um, so I asked the friend of Ali's if I could bring the money for him next month. So I, deli- I was the bag man, I delivered the cash. And, uh, and Rockman and I became friends and he gave, gave me a, a long interview. and took me to the house where they grew up and walked me through the house and showed me where the, the beds in the bedroom were. You know, one of the things he tried, this is the, the house, by the way, um, where they grew up on um, Grand Avenue in Louisville in an all-black neighborhood, but a, a working-class neighborhood. You know, most boxers come out of poverty and Ollie did not. He came from a, 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 a solid uh, middle-class home the neighbors were school teachers and, and principals and undertakers, um, and Ali's father was a sign painter, so I was a little less well off than some of the neighbors, but still, you know, he didn't have to worry about whether there was going to be food on the table at night. He was well provided for. Um, I learned that Ali's father was a drinker and, and a carouser and had beaten his children uh, at least a, a few times and. Police were called to the house sometimes because he beat his wife. So Ali had challenges, to be sure. Um, He was also dyslexic and um, couldn't please his his teachers, couldn't please his parents with his schoolwork, was obviously incredibly bright and clever, had this incredible appetite for attention. And he found his 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 fix. He found the way to get attention with Bot. And how many people know the story of um, Muhammad Ali's bicycle? So most people, these, these legends, uh, the legend about Ali, and this one happens to be true, is that he had this very nice bicycle, a $50 bicycle, a Schwinn, bright red, um, with chrome bumpers. And one day, he was riding it, and it was raining, and he, he wanted to get out of the rain, so he parked his bicycle and ducked into a building. And when he came back out, the bicycle was gone, stolen. He went looking for a police officer, because he was really scared. He was going to go home and tell his dad that this bicycle was stolen. He was going to get whooped. Um, found a police officer, and the police officer was running a boxing club. And Ali sees these boxers, and, and sees the, the gym, and is enchanted by this. He also sees white kids and black kids in the ring together. He sees black kids punching white kids. It's really important. That's not supposed to happen. You can get arrested. You can get worse than arrested for that in the South in the 1950s. Um, so he's intrigued by this because this is a place where the normal rules don't apply. And he discovers boxing, and he discovers that he's really good at it, and he discovers that this is a way to get attention. And he, he, it's something he craves. And with the other myth, how many people know the myth about Ali racing the school bus? Um, so another one of these stories is that Ali used to race the bus to school every day. And one of the things I try to do as a biographer is to put you there, put you in the house. I wanted, So I went with and. I wanted to know where the beds were in the bedroom. Who had the, the bed closer to the window? Um, I measured you know, the distance between the houses so I can tell you that the view out of Ollie's window was the next house away, 72 inches. Um, but I wanted to know what it was like racing that bus. Did he wear gym clothes? Did he wear school clothes? Um, one of Ollie's friends, Mr. Sitgrave, Owen Sitgrave, said to me, you know, it was a city bus. He said we paid 10 cents to ride. And I had a hard time with that. Like, I couldn't quite picture it. So it wasn't a school bus after all. It was a city bus. And months of it went by and I was trying to write this scene and I, I called Mr. Sidgraves and I said, something about this is bothering me. You said it was a city bus, right? Doesn't a city bus stop all the time? Like every block? He said, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and then he said, oh, well, we transferred to Chestnut. So if he wanted to race the bus, he could win easy, right? And Mr. Sikias laughed, and he said, he wasn't really racing the bus. He was just doing it to entertain us. He wasn't trying to get in shape. He was just wanted us all to know that he was a boxer. So he was showing off. And in fact, he said sometimes he would, he would grab onto the window of the bus and swing on the side of the bus while the bus drove along because he thought it was hilarious. And the bus driver might see him and come out and yell at him and make him get off. So here's a, a really great insight into this man's personality, that yes, he wanted to be the champion. He wanted to, and he was bragging at the age of 12 and 13 that he was going to be the heavyweight champion of the world before he even knew whether he was going to grow tall enough and big enough to be a heavyweight, but he had this, this appetite for fame and for, and for fortune. Um, but most of all, he wanted attention. So this is a really key insight into this person whose life I'm trying to understand, somebody who I haven't met. Um, but I'm trying to write a book, I mean, it's an enormous act of hubris in a way, really, to think that you can write about someone's life and and describe it in a way that, you know, I'm the greatest expert in the world on this man's life, never even met him, right? So, um, this is a key insight, and it's really helpful. Um, this is the the, the building where he used to, where he ducked in out of the rain, and and the boxing gym was in the basement of that building in in Louisville. And um, Ali, turns out, it is really good. And he wins a bunch of Golden Gloves championships. He gets to travel around the country as an amateur boxer, sees that there is a world outside of Louisville, goes to Chicago, and sees that black and white people interact in different ways there. He's intrigued by this. He discovers in Chicago the nation of Islam, which preaches kind of like his father was. Ali's father was always saying, black people are never going to get a fair chance in life. You can't trust the white man to ever give you a shot at equality Integration is a waste of time. Ali's father was a Garveyite. He believed that the best thing would, that could happen would be for black people to go back to Africa. So, Ali in Chicago discovers the Nation of Islam, which has some similar ideas that the only way really is to separate, to force America to give us our own land where we could create our own nation. And Ali begins to take it, take that idea seriously. He goes to Rome for the Olympics in 1960, wins the light heavyweight championship, comes back to Louisville. This is a picture outside his high, high school. school. His brother, Rudy, next to him. You'll see Rudy in almost every picture of Ali in the 60s and 70s. He was like his shadow. Um, and, um, and discovers in, in Rome that, that he loves people, and people seem to love him. There's this natural sparkle, this magic. He's got this charisma. All you know, Even before he wins the championship in Rome, the newspaper reporters are saying, this is the star of the American team. Um, whether he wins the gold or not, this kid has something. And he's the mayor of the Olympic Village at the age of 18. He comes back, and um, he, he is not really um, qualified to graduate from high school, but the principal says, this kid might be famous someday, and I don't want to be the one who fails him. So they give him a diploma, and he turns pro, and he starts boxing, and, and realizes that he has a charm that separate from his boxing ability, is really good for his career. He gets a shot at the heavyweight championship probably before he's qualified just because he's such a great attraction. He has this ability to promote his fights like nobody else. He likes the fact that that people get mad at him. So he he gives a lot of lip. He talks trash at his opponents at a time when sportsmanship was still considered an important, a necessary quality for a champion. Um, Reporters are (coughs) mentioning that his first nickname is the Louisville Lip because he's so obnoxious. And when he finally gets a chance at the heavyweight championship in 1964 to fight this man, Sonny Liston. Liston is considered a monster. His, biography, his autobiography is called The Champion No One Wanted because he's so unpopular. He's, 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 a, he's a convicted criminal. Uh, he's beat up police officers. He's in with the mob. And yet, people want to see him knock out Cassius Clay because Cassius Clay is such an obnoxious character People are actually, for the first time, rooting for Sonny Liston. And the good news for people who hate Clay is that it would appear to be that we're going to be done with him soon, because Sonny Liston's going to murder him. Everybody believes that Liston is going to win this fight within a matter of seconds. The only question is whether Cassius Clay is going to be rendered unconscious or dead. And somehow, he wins. He becomes the heavyweight champion in the world. And, and something that people don't appreciate, I mean, Clay had this boxing style that was unorthodox. He, you know, you, when you're a boxer, you're supposed to keep your, especially heavyweights, to keep your hands up, protect your head. He was so fast, he didn't have to. He could just move his head away at the last second and avoid these punches. And so people didn't think he could last against a big, strong man like Sonny Liston. But it's what they forget is that Ali was a big, strong guy too. He had speed and power. And after a while, that that quick, quick jab just wears Liston and out. And, and he doesn't get off the school at the end of the sixth round. He gives up the heavyweight championship without even being knocked down. And Ali becomes the champion. And when he does, he makes a very important statement. He, decide, he announces that he's the heavyweight champion now. And that changes things. He doesn't have to do what society expects him to do anymore. And for a black athlete to say this, look, black athletes today are getting in trouble for saying what they think, for saying for having political views, right? Fifty some odd years later. In 1964, black people are still second-class citizens officially, according to the law in this country. Ali says, I don't have to be what you want me to be. I don't have to do what you tell me to do. And he announces that he's no longer a Christian, that he is now a member of the Nation of Islam, which is considered a terrorist group in this country. This is Elijah Muhammad in the middle. Once again, Rudy manages to get into the picture. And Ali announces that He has joined this group, which is considered a hate group. And he becomes even more unpopular as a a result of this. And then announces that, a few years later, that he won't go into the draft. That that he, um, first he says that he doesn't want to fight because he just doesn't want to go over there. It's interesting to see his views of all of this, because this is probably the most important moment in, in the making of Ali, and why he's so important to us today. First he just says, I don't want to go. I fa- he failed his IQ test the first time. And the standards were lowered, and his IQ test was now considered passing. He said, I'm not any smarter than I was last time. I didn't get any smarter. Why do you want me to go over there? Then he says, um, Well, you can take my tax dollars. I'm making a lot of money fighting. Take the taxes and use it to buy bomber jets and tanks and kill all the Vietnamese you want. And then he says, Well, this war is racist. We're second class citizens. Why should we fight for a country that treats us like, like second class citizens? And black people are dying in disproportionate numbers rich white kids they just get their daddies to write them a letter and they don't have to go to Vietnam but all these poor black kids were being sent over there to die that's not right and then he says finally well I'm a member of the nation of Islam I'm a minister and our religion says that we don't fight secular wars and that's the argument that he finally takes to court but it took him a while to get there Ali is convicted of draft evasion, sentenced to five years, and banned from boxing. There's no... While the case is on appeal, he's banned from boxing, stripped of his heavyweight crown. There's no law that says that convicted felons can't box. In fact, there are a lot of convicted felons (laughs) in boxing. Um, The reason Ali is stripped of his boxing title is because... People don't like him. I mean, it's, that's that's the only reason. He's black, he's up. He's, he's uppity, and he's controversial, and he, he can't get a fight for three and a half years. He's out of boxing. The prime years of his career, when he's at his greatest, are lost. Millions of dollars that he could make, not only in boxing, but from endorsement deals, gone. And he's offered a deal. The government says, if you box exhibitions for a year, we'll let you continue to fight professionally. He won't do it. He says his convictions are are genuine. He would rather face a firing squad than make a compromise, than than cut a deal with the government. And I think this is the most important moment in his his life and career. Finally, after three and a half years, um, the Supreme Court eventually overturns his conviction on a technicality. But before it's even overturned, he gets a chance to come back to boxing. The courts rule that it was unfair to strip him of his license. He gets a chance to come back. And I think this is really the turning point in Ali's life. In 1971, he fights Joe Frazier, the fight of the century. Joe Frazier is the new champion, but Ali has never been beaten. It's the first time ever that two undefeated heavyweight champions are fighting. And by now, at 71, the war is incredibly unpopular. People see that Ali has suffered, that he was absolutely sincere in his beliefs. And the nation of Islam doesn't seem as scary anymore. Eldridge Cleaver, the Black Power movement, seems a lot scarier. And there's a lot more understanding for Ali. There's a lot more sympathy. And people feel like he was a martyr. He sacrificed for what he believed, whether you agree with him or not. Then he fights Joe Frazier, and he gets knocked on his rear end. In the 14th round, by a vicious okay. left hook. No, 14th. He gets up. Are we 15th round? I'm pretty sure it was the 14th. Uh, We'll talk about it later. Um, He gets back up as soon as he's knocked down. And he finishes the fight. He loses by decision. But he finishes that fight. And I think this is the key moment when people say, wow, this is a tough guy. And he has to earn his way back to the heavyweight championship. He has to fight again and again to get another shot. And Americans begin to see him as the kind of warrior that we embrace. Somebody who gets knocked down and gets back up. He keeps fighting for what he believes And it's the 70s now. Things are a little bit less controversial. And, and Ali has changed too. He actually enjoys being a celebrity now, which I think he always enjoyed the spotlight. But now he's not talking about race as much anymore. He's not talking about Vietnam. He's not in our faces as much. He's on Johnny Carson all the time. He's doing TV commercials now. He's an entertainer. Um, the writer Stanley Crouch had a great line. He said that Ali in the 60s was a grizzly bear. He was wild. He was uncontrollable. He was dangerous. In the 70s, he becomes like a circus bear. He's still dangerous, but he's entertaining. And we'll pay to see him and feel good about it. And in the last act of his career, Crouch says, he becomes a teddy bear. We just want to hug him. I'll talk about the teddy bear phase in a little while. But in the 70s, we see Ali becoming... Famous and popular and enjoying it. And then he gets his shot at the heavyweight championship again in 1974 against George Foreman, a man who, like Sonny Liston, is considered unbeatable. He's younger, he's stronger. <coughs> Everybody assumes that Ali has no chance. The fight's in Africa. God only knows, Don King pulled this off, and we got a fight in Zaire under the dictator Mobutu, who wants to make his country look a little less hellish by having Muhammad Ali, the greatest ambassador of America, come and, and fight there. This becomes like a referendum on who's the biggest and baddest black man in, in the world. And everybody assumes that Ali is done for. Him. And somehow he beats George Foreman. I interviewed Foreman, and he said to me, um, first of all, he still believes that he was drugged by his own manager before the fight. <laughs> then he said to me, I said, you really still believe that? He said, I know it. I don't believe that. I know it. And then he said to me, also... If you watch the, the the fight on YouTube, you'll see it, it appears that the referee did not really give George a 10 count when he got knocked down. Maybe eight or nine, I would argue. But George says, before the fight, I gave the ref $25,000 cash to make sure it would be a fair fight. My manager said we had to give the ref $25,000 cash before the fight, and I gave him the money, cash. And then I, and George says, then I found out that Ali's camp gave him more than $25,000. So I called Ali's manager this big old gruff guy named Jim Kilroy. I said, is it true that George gave the ref 25000 before the fight and you guys gave him more? The manager said, that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. That's stupid. We only gave him $10,000. <laughs> uh, so take it for what it's worth. I don't know. Um, but Ali just lets the strongest man on earth hit him for five, six rounds, and then in the sixth round starts fighting back. It's suicide. Everybody's saying, what's he doing? He's just resting up against the ropes. Later he'd call it the rope-a-dope, which would become famous. And when Foreman starts to get tired, maybe the drugs are finally taking effect, or it's the heat, or he's just worn out, Ali starts fighting back, and he knocks out George Foreman. He becomes the champion of the world again. And this is the moment when I wish he would have retired. And Elijah Muhammad calls him and says, your fighting days are done. It's time to retire. You've proven everything there is to prove. But Ali can't stop. And it's sad because he fights on for another seven years. And he begins to take a pounding. He begins relying on that rope of dope. He lets people hit him. And he begins telling his opponents, his sparring partners, to, to hit him in the head during practice sessions so that he can get used to being hit in the head. He believes that he can build up um, resistance, like, like calluses. And it's tragic. Um, I counted the number of punches. I, you worked with a stats company, a boxing um, stat this company. And we counted the number of punches in Ali's career. And you can see in this last part of his career, he's getting outpunched dramatically by his opponents. I estimate, if you include the sparring sessions, the exhibitions, amateur career, he was probably punched about 200,000 times. And he, he's, I also worked with scientists to track his speaking ability. You can see from 1970 to 1980, he loses 26% of his speaking rate. A normal person, range 30 to 40, wouldn't lose any of their speaking rate. I'm speaking now as quickly as I did when I was 20 <coughs> years old. I hope um, nobody's measured. But um, for Ali, the losses are clear. And if you just watch him on TV, you can see how by the late 70s, he's talking really slowly and he's hard to understand. Um, but he keeps fighting. Um, because he likes the money. He likes the endorsements that come with it. Um, everybody remember these commercials that used to be on TV in the 70s? Decon Roach, Fogger, Killsbugs, Dead. Um, he couldn't say the word fog. He had to shoot that commercial dozens of times because he couldn't get the, the, the F sound out. And, and he began to say to, his, to, his, to journalists, do you think I have brain damage? Do you think there's something wrong with me? He was aware of it. And he kept fighting. Um, And Ali goes into retirement, finally after two terrible losses, goes into retirement, and he disappears. For the 80s and into the early 90s, we really don't hear much about him. He's diagnosed with Parkinson's syndrome, probably caused by the punches. Doctors said it was almost certainly caused by these punches. And he's depressed. He spends more time and devotes himself to his religious work, becomes an orthodox Muslim. But for two, $3,000, you can hire him to sit at your used car dealership and sign autographs all day. And he loved it. He always loved people. He This is a guy who would go to the airport four hours early just so he could sit there and sign autographs. You know, he wanted to be around people. He, he, he drew, drew such energy from that. Um, people would, you know, he'd be on a TV show and they'd have a car waiting for him in the back lot. He'd say, you know, pull it around to the front. where people can see me. And he would spend hours just signing on autographs on the street. He loved that more than anything. But then he gets, in 1996, um, Everybody, that, how many people remember this when it was on TV? Um, in the Olympics in 1996 in Atlanta, nobody knows who's going to light the torch. And the, the torch is, Joan Benoit takes the torch up the ramp, and you see this guy in a white tracksuit emerge from the shadows, and there's this gasp from the crowd. It's not a cheer, it's, it's silence for a minute. Oh my God, it's Ali. We haven't seen him in so long, and we've forgotten about him. And it's this awakening. It's this rediscovery. All is forgiven. All of the obnoxious behavior, all of the politics, it's all out the window now. Because look at him. His arms are shaking. He can barely hold the torch. He has to light this thing, and he can't do it. The flame is wicking up. It looks like it's going to set him on fire. And then he gets the torch lit, and you hear... Ali, 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 through the stadium. And this is the moment that Ali becomes the icon, becomes the saint, the American hero, um, becomes the teddy bear that we all just want to embrace. And I think that's great. It was good for him. It made, it, it made him feel very happy that America cared about him again. But in some ways, it was unfortunate, too, because it distilled this image of the safe Ali in our minds. It gave us this this impression that he was just all things to all people. And he started to see his children writing books. That, you know, made him sound like he was the Dalai Lama. That, that you know, every word he ever spoke was genius, and that we can draw inspiration from it. And what I wanted to do with this book was to show him in all of his complexity, to show that he was a real person, that he had flaws. He was not a good husband. He was not a good father, and he took care, terrible care of his money, and often you know, abused his own friends. But there was this warmth about him. There was this spark that just, that, that if you were in the room with him as as Rosellen was, you lit up anytime you were around him. I wanted to capture all of that complexity. And of course, also, you know, in my quest, I interviewed maybe 250 people for this book. Three, all three of his living wives. Um, almost everybody who knew him well. I'm sorry that I missed you. When I would have loved to have interviewed you. Um, but I also wanted, of course, to meet Ali. And I spent many years, I've worked for, on this book for more than four, four or and a half years, I spent a good couple of years just trying to get in the room with him. I went to a couple of fundraisers where he was appearing and he didn't show up or I couldn't get to him. But I got to meet his wife and uh, I... Um, told his wife that I was doing this book, and I wanted this to be the definitive account of his life. And she said, oh, well, you should really come to meet him. And I said, yeah, I'd like that. Um, And um, when I got back home, after meeting her, I wrote her a letter and thanking her. And and my daughter, who was five at the time, came in the room and and said, what are you doing, Dad? And I said, I'm writing a letter to Muhammad Ali and his wife. And she said, she heard heard me talk about Muhammad Ali since she was a toddler. And she said, can I write a letter to Muhammad Ali? I said, sure. And I handed her this paper, and she asked me how to spell Muhammad. Um, and she wrote, Dear Muhammad, my daddy really loves you. Do you love my daddy? <laughs> oh, that's good. That's really good. So I, did, I stuck it in the envelope, and uh, Lonnie called me when she got it and said, Oh, that was such a sweet letter from your daughter. Why don't you bring your daughter when you come to visit? And I said, That'd be great. You know, it just so happens we're going to be in Louisville in three weeks. And, uh... I'd love to just stop by the house, Not, I don't want to do an interview, no tape recorders, no cameras, I just want to meet this man, I'm, gonna, I'm spending you know, years working on his, on his story, and I'm going to be talking about him probably for the rest of my life, and it would just really mean a lot to me to look him in the eye and to talk and, to, and to introduce myself. So she said, yeah, come, come, to, come visit us when you're in town. So um, I, I was kind of lying, I didn't really have plans to go to Louisville, <laughs> so I booked the ticket, took my daughter to Louisville, and we went to the house, and um, got there and spent two hours with Lonnie, but Ali was feeling sick that day, it didn't come out of his room, so I'm in his living room, he's in the next room over, and I did not get to meet him, it was, in, it was uh, torture, and I had this whole, the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, that any minute now he's going to come up behind me tap me on the shoulder. He's going to be the young Ali, like, walking on the set of the Merv Griffin show, and he's going to be throwing punches at me and, 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 and hamming it up, but he didn't come out. And then, a few months later, I heard, he, I talked to Lonnie, and he was feeling better, and he was going to be in Louisville at, a, at an awards ceremony. I went down there, and uh, I spent the day with one of Ollie's close friends, and I was a nervous wreck that I was going to finally meet him, and what was I going to say to him? And I really, like, hadn't decided. And that afternoon, I went for a jog. I, I liked to jog, and I went for a run along the route that Ali used to run on his way to school. I, I don't know why. I just thought it would be kind of cool. And As I was running, I thought, how ridiculous is this, you know? Um, I know that the biographer's job is to empathize, to try to understand, but well, what is a, what am I, 60 years later, a white guy from New York, uh, what am I going to learn from running in Ali's footsteps? And then I thought, well, now I know what I'm going to ask him. Because it, it's not really my story, it's his story. I'm going to just... So I met him there and I was so nervous. And a lot of people um, me, and I, I put my hand on his hand, and I looked him in the eye, and, and, I, and, I, and I said, Mohammed, I'm Jonathan Egg, and I'm writing your biography, and it's just such a great honor. And it's a huge responsibility, and I take it so seriously, and I just want to do this the best I can. And I want to thank you for the chance to do it, and anything you want to say. I would be honored to include it in this book, um, and he didn't answer. You know, he looked at me, and I think he knew what I was saying. Lonnie told me later that he understood, but he didn't answer. And that was hard for me, but in a sense, I think it was it was okay. It was a relief in a way because, you know, it, it's his life, but it's my book, and it's my responsibility to figure out how to write it, not his. And I guess what I learned about you know who this guy was and what made him great was that he had the desire from a very early age to change the world, not to accept it the way he found it. And that's something we all a responsibility we all have. We don't all get the, get the platform he did to change the world. But we all have a responsibility not to accept the world as we find it, but to fight for change. And I think for Ali when you Embrace that when you make it a part of your core, when you are willing to sacrifice for that, when you're willing to get knocked down over and over and get back up, that's when you get to call yourself the greatest of all time. Thank you very much. We um, have some time for questions. Is that okay? Yeah, if anybody has questions, happy to. Yes? Did you go to his funeral? I did go to his funeral, and it was extraordinary. How many people watched it on TV? And I know you said you were there. Um, I can't think of anyone else, certainly not in my lifetime, who would get that kind of send-off. I know, like, it wasn't Lincoln's body, like, taken around the country on a train. I think FDR, too. But is there anyone living today who would get that kind of send-off where tens of thousands of people just line the streets to watch the hearse go by? And another... You know, 10,000 people fill an auditorium. It was amazing. And I was out there on the street talking to people who um, had driven from New York and Detroit and South Carolina, people who'd never met him. They were just inspired by him. And white, black, Christian, Muslim, everybody found something about him that, that resonated. And it's extraordinary. I really can't think of another human who would get that kind of a send-off. It was really powerful. Were you able to interview the children? Like, why I interviewed some of the children. Um, a lot of them were working on their own books and didn't want to share their stories because they felt like if they shared it with me, they wouldn't be able to sell their own stories. So some of the kids talked to me and some didn't. Um, and, and Layla had already written a book where she was very honest, and brutally honest, really, about what a bad dad he was. And you know, she told these really sad stories about Feeling like every time he came home, he was surrounded by an entourage, and she didn't have time with him. She, you know, would look out across the street and see families eating, sitting down to dinner together, and had no idea what that would be like because her family never sat down to dinner except maybe on Thanksgiving. It was, um, it was tough being his kid. I think. Anything else? Yes, sir. So, uh, so uh, I have to invite you to welcome
0: Cam sure the magic.
2: Yeah, so I'm working on a documentary with Ken Burns on Ali. I'm very excited about that. I was really fortunate. I was in his Prohibition documentary because of my book about Al Capone. I was in his Jackie Robinson documentary. And as I was working on this, I said, you know, Ali would be really cool. And, uh, and I sold him on it. So I'm going to be a, a consulting, whatever, producer or something like that. And we're starting to do interviews now. And it'll probably be on the air in 2020. Did, you watch, uh, when we Were Kings? did I watch what? We oh yeah, that's great. If anybody, if you haven't seen it, uh, check it out. It's a documentary on the Zaire fight with George Foreman called When We Were Kings. It's one of the best sports movies of all time, I think. Yeah, it's great. Yes. Did you talk to Leon Yeah, I did talk to Leon, and, and I, I I tried to get at some of, like some of the old footage that he had left over. Leon was the director of that, of that movie. And, uh, yeah, amazing just how much, how much footage he had and how much time he spent on that film. So, while you spoke actually in your book, <coughs> like, spoke no words to you. No, and he didn't say, a word. And he hadn't done an interview in, like, 20 years at that point. It, he stopped giving interviews and he could still communicate a little bit, you know, like, with friends. He would, he'd, you know, would say their names and mm-hmm. he would, um, He spent spent a lot of his time on Skype with his grandkids, but he mostly just waved and blew kisses and stuff. He really wasn't very communicative in the last years. His wife said that uh, his favorite thing to do for the last uh, few years was just to watch himself on YouTube. Um, And I guess if I were Ali and I were that beautiful, uh, I'd watch myself on YouTube too. Um, Yes, sir. No, you know, he wasn't. It was interesting. Right afterwards, when the the Supreme Court reversed his conviction, somebody said, are you going to sue for your lost wages? And and, and, uh, prominent lawyers were offering to represent him. And he said, you know, they were just doing what they thought was right, and I was doing what I thought was right. There's no point in holding a grudge. And he never did. He was like that. Business people who he trusted would rip him off for millions of dollars. And he would say, well, he just really needed the money, I guess, and maybe do another business deal with him. Um, some of the stories are, 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 are sad, some of them are hilarious, but it just goes to show, he never cared about money. And he always just, maybe you could say he was gullible and naive, but I think he was also just really you know, warm hearted. Um, my favorite story along those lines is, um, he's in the boxing gym and, and this guy comes in in a wheelchair, he's amped, he's got double amputation of his legs and um, he's wearing a Dodgers cap and uh, Angelo Dundee, Ali's trainer, comes over and says, Ali, that guy over there he's going to come up to you and he's going he's gonna to pretend he's Roy Campanella, the former Brooklyn Dodger it's not Campanella it's just a con man, and he's just going to hit you up for money don't give him any money, okay Ali? and Angelo turns around and, and sees Ali like going into his pocket and taking out a big wad of cash and handing it to this guy and he comes over and says Ali, what are you doing? I told you it's a con man. Why are you giving him money? And he said, Ange, you and me, we got legs. And that was Ali, you know? He, he, he didn't care. The guys would, there was a guy who, a business dealer, who ripped him off for millions and then went to jail for a um, huge cocaine deal. And Ali testified in court on his behalf. I didn't care what it was going to do to his image that he was testifying on behalf of this big time coke dealer. It was a friend and he was gonna stand up for him. So I mean it's one of the really nice attributes, even if it was you know naive at times. Yeah. Where where would uh is be located where
1: he used to
2: invite all his friends at? the camp the training camp in Deer yeah. Lake, Pennsylvania? Uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah, but they had some good time. They had some good times, yeah. Uh, Lots of women, and uh, just you know, he just liked an audience. His wife said to me, you know, he cheated relentlessly on his wives, and um, the wives knew about it. Sometimes they would book hotel rooms for the mistresses. And uh, Belinda, who now known as Khalila, his second wife, who in his picture I showed you, she said, "I don't even really think he he liked the sex that much. I think it was mostly just that he liked being around people, and he liked making people happy, and." she really thought that was the main reason for it which, I don't know maybe, it's a, he's a
0: complicated guy yes regrets
2: about yeah, he turned his back on Malcolm and a lot of people felt like Malcolm's wife thought that Ali could have spoken up and, and, and prevented the assassination if Ali had come out and, and, and said anything happens to this guy you know, i quit the nation of Islam. But he did. not He, in fact, um, threw fuel on the fire and said that he thought Malcolm deserved to die for crossing Elijah Muhammad. And um, he did express regret about that years later. He said that he felt badly for, for turning his back on a friend. But he was so unbelievably loyal to Elijah Muhammad. He divorced his first wife, even though he loved her and didn't want to divorce her. Um, because Elijah Muhammad didn't accept her, she wouldn't accept the nation of Islam. So that was a very interesting relationship. Yes? What kind of relationship Muhammad Ali have with Ali Kosell? Kosell, a lot of people ask about that because um, it's one of the things Ali is most famous for. He, I think that they were a great vaudeville team, basically. I don't think they were best friends, I don't think either of them ever went to the other's house for dinner. Um, but Cosell really was one of the first um, sports journalists to accept Ali's conversion and to say, look, if he wants to change his name, he can change his name. You know, Marilyn Monroe and John Wayne and Izzy Iskowitz changed their name, right? Um, why should we say just because he's black and because we don't like the Nation of Islam that he's not allowed to change his name? Um, and, and Cosell... Found, it was good for both of their careers you know Cosell made Ali look warm and funny and Ali made Cosell seem important so it was good for both their careers uh, but I don't think it was like a I don't think they were best friends or anything like that sure yes Yeah, that's, that's great. And he loved that. He, he knew it all. That he talked about it all the time. First of all, he said, when, when I fight 40 billion people all over the world watching, other fighters can't handle that kind of attention. They, they get nervous. But he loved it. And he, he said, when I die, you know, he, he predicted what the funeral was going to be like and what the attention would be like. Um, but the interesting thing that you point out is that you know, the reason I think the world really sees him as important was because he took a stand against his own government. And when Ali was asked in the 70s what his biggest regret in life was, he said, I regret that Vietnam thing. I said, wow, what are you talking about? That was the most important thing you did. And he said, I regret it because people got really mad at me. And he couldn't handle the idea that people were mad at him. Like These warring um, impulses within him. He wanted to rebel. He wanted to fight the government. He wanted to fight the establishment. But he also wanted to be loved. And he... I think it was really, really hard. It tore him apart. Yeah, and he and he still felt like he would have rather been loved. And that's, go figure. Maybe uh, he wasn't. Maybe he didn't get a blow from his dad or something. You know, if you want to play pop psychologist, maybe that's what he was trying to uh, compensate or something. Yes. Did you, you know if he played any other sports? He? he hated other, every other sport because he said he didn't boxing was the best because in football you had to wear a helmet and people couldn't see how pretty he was <coughs> in baseball there was nine guys on the field at one time how's anybody going to pay attention to him um, so he was ne- he did a little bit of track in high school but he was not interested in any other sports and-, and he was surprisingly bad like if you ever see a video of him like shooting a basketball he's awful like I could beat him one on one he's bad um, so it's it's strange. He found the right sport for him. That's for sure. Good question. What well, a statement uh,
0: for you? Is that he was one of the first champions of all all over the world. That's why he was. Yeah, playing. that's true too. That was number two to the fact that he was against the war, which was galvanized in the Asian community too. Now, yeah. Obviously, the country. Okay,
2: so. Yeah, that's a good point.
0: <coughs> two is. Um, what
2: do you think? I think he believed it from the time he was three years old. Um, he, he, his, his mother said that, like in the maternity war, he was the, like the loudest baby and, and, and wanted to like wake up all the other babies. It seemed like that was her impression. And I think he, he maybe it was like sibling rivalry. His brother was only like, a year and a half younger than him, and they were. It was his brother was a little bit bigger and stronger. Whatever it was, he just always needed to prove he was the best, and and he believed it. He had this extraordinary self confidence from an early age. Um, really amazing. I have a question about the um, the uh, neurological
0: issue. Our um, doctors trying to use him. I don't know. Our doctors trying to use his case now about the sports and
2: danger um, injuries. Well, there's a lot more attention now to the dangers of, of sports-related head injuries. Um, and I think most of the research is in football because so many people play football. Boxing, um, Ali was not autopsied so we were not able to prove that the boxing caused the damage. Um, obviously there's a lot of strong anecdotal evidence that the boxing caused the damage, but we don't have an autopsy so we don't really know. And why not? wife didn't want to do an autopsy. Yeah. But. Oh, the, the cause of death was pneumonia, sepsis, um, from uh, an infection, but, that's, but, but the, the cause of the Parkinson's, um, it was Parkinson's syndrome, not Parkinson's disease, which means that it's a, it's a, it's a cluster of symptoms that resemble Parkinson's disease. Um, but his doctor at the time of diagnosis said that they thought it was caused by the, the blows to the head, but that there was no way to ever prove that without an autopsy. It's just, we don't have the science for that yet. Yes. Oh, I wanted
1: to respond, because yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm writing a book too, because my mother needs a him. but um, I've been doing research, but I haven't done as much as he has, <laughs> but um, his daughter, the oldest girl, what's her name, name it. she's been doing research on his disease, and she said it might be tied to the father being a painter, the chemicals that he used, it might cause that because the brother has the same disease. Yeah. yeah. Um, but his, the brother was also just, a boxer, too. Just so discovered it. So yeah. the brother has the same disease. Rockland has some of the yeah, same symptoms. Yeah. 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 So it might not be, um, it could be tied to the panic.
2: Um, yeah. yeah. Some people thought it could be tied to the log cabins that they built with uh, all this creosote on them and up at his training camp. <coughs> but, but the truth is that it's, if you get hit, in the head thousands and thousands of times by some of the strongest men in the world, it's probably gonna cause some damage. Yeah. Well, I think the reason the family didn't want an autopsy is because they like to uh, they'd like to think that this was something unavoidable, that he didn't bring this on himself, that this was a disease that would have affected him whether he'd been a boxer or an accountant. It's just I think it gives her some comfort to know that he didn't inflict this on himself. And it's like maybe better for his image if he's seen as a victim and not a victim of his own um, choices. And the fact that he boxed far too long for the money and suffered additional brain damage for that is just not a part of the picture that they like to talk about, I think. All right, well, thank you all so much for coming tonight. I'm going to sign books. Anybody like to buy? Yeah.